welcome to another version, another episode of the Sam Fight Win live stream, Real Lawyers, Real Answers. I'm Keith Davidson. I'm Stuart Albertson. How you doing today, Stuart? I'm I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm Keith? doing good. So today is part two of our step parent, step child episode. So last week we talked about step parents and step children, and this week we're going to continue that discussion. But before we do. You look like you're about to go on vacation, Stuart. Well, you informed me that I had to wear this Hawaiian shirt, and I've been highly mm. embarrassed today as I walk around. Everyone's asking me, why am I wearing this shirt? But uh, why, are, why are we wearing these shirts? <laughs> do you know? I, I think it has to do with Hawaii, but yes. I don't know. Okay. Well, actually, you look good in that shirt. You're more colorful than I am. So Stuart and I are going to be talking in November, actually, at the Hawaii Tax Institute, which is a big deal. It's a lot of uh, everybody from the wealth transfer community, so lawyers, accountants, uh, professional trustees. It's a whole group of really great people. And we'll be talking there like we did last year. And this year, if for those people who are interested, you can sign up for the Hawaii Tax Institute and get a discount code, be a guest of Albertson and Davidson, and you can get $500 off the registration fee. Wow, that yeah. is, I mean, that makes it worth it right there. Yeah, and so it's a pretty good deal. So uh, we're gonna have our, web, our website up uh, this week, and you can go as when part you of say our website. You're talking about the Hawaii Tax Institute website. We're going to have a web page on our on our uh, website okay. where you can get the discount code. So keep your eyes open for our YouTube page. So on our YouTube page, you'll see a video advertising the Hawaii Tax Institute. And if you're interested, you can click the link, get your discounts code, save five hundred bucks, and take yourself and probably your family to Hawaii. Very nice. You can't really go by yourself if you have family, right? Well, you can, but they just can't come with you. <laughs> it doesn't make them happy. Yeah. I learned that the hard way. Um, so this broadcast is going out live on Facebook and YouTube. And after our live is over, you can watch a recorded broadcast of this on Facebook and YouTube. You can also get an audio-only version of it on iTunes. So that's how you find us. And so let's get started today on our Asked and Answered sequence. And we're going to go right into the questions because there's a lot of questions that come up with these step-parent relationships. And in particular today, we're going to be focusing a little bit more on problems that arise between the stepchildren. And so last week we were talking a little bit more about the children versus the step-parent relationship and the problems that arise there. So here we're kind of looking more towards the two different sides of the family, as it were. And what can you do as a parent, what can you do to try and protect uh, disputes from arising. So this is a chance for everybody out there to learn from the problems that we have handled through our practice because we only deal with the problems. We don't do planning. Uh, we only do disputes. But we know a lot of great attorneys who do do planning and we used to do estate planning years ago. And so it's a chance for us to kind of give our opinion on some things that you should think about when you're planning because seems to me that uh, the disputes lead to better planning or better thoughts on planning. Yeah, and if we had known all of the pitfalls and landmines you run into in this area after doing all the litigation, we would do estate planning much differently today than we did many years ago even. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah, there's just so many problems. So why don't we start with uh, Kayla? Hello, Kayla. Hi. So our first question today is, my stepchild has borrowed thousands of dollars. How can I prevent this from being an issue between the siblings after I pass away? So you can imagine if you have one child, especially with a second marriage, one child has borrowed money. So not only is his siblings, his natural siblings gonna be upset, but the step-siblings are gonna be even more upset or as upset, who knows, or, or not, depending right. on who they are. But 
So how would you plan for something like that? Well, I think probably the best way to do it if both you and your spouse are in agreement is that you want to treat your children fairly. So you start from that premise and let's just call it two kids on each side. So that would be 25% each. And let's say that that's ultimately how you want to distribute the estate on the second spouse's death. Um, you can do some estate planning to make sure that happens uh, with the bypass trust and survivor's trust. But specifically for the child who's the spendthrift who has gotten more than the other children, um, you have to be careful with how you do this. You actually have to put a provision in the trust and it's an advance on inheritance provision. Or you have to, at the same time you're making the loans to this uh, child, have a contemporaneous writing showing that this is something that is supposed to be coming out of their inheritance. Well, it's a little problematic to have that contemporaneous writing every time you're making loans to this person. So the easiest way to do that is either through an amendment to your current estate plan, your trust, or if you're creating a new trust, just put in there, look, we're giving this four ways to our four children. I have two children from one spouse, two children from the other. We've got one between us and the lawyers, one that's not real responsible, and we've had to really fund them with, the, let's call it $500,000 over the last 10 years, we want that to be what we call an advance against their inheritance. What do you think of that? So yeah, I think, it, I think the best way to go is with uh, terms of the trust or a trust amendment. I think the contemporaneous writing has some problems because number one, when parents loan a child money, nobody sits down and writes anything, right? It's very awkward to do that. Number two, the child's going to say after death, once the parents are gone, the child's what are they going to say when you present them? It was with a gift. Note? It was a gift. Yeah, it's a gift or I paid it back. Yeah. You know, you're not giving me credit for the amount I paid back. Right. They may or may not have paid anything back. Who knows? It's right. very hard to know that, especially right. over a long period of time. So it's a lot easier for the parents just to create a trust, say we want to deduct X dollars from this one child's share, and that's how we're going to equalize it, and that's the way it is. And the interesting thing about that, too, is that if the trust says we're going to deduct $500,000 from one kid's share, it doesn't matter if there's a contemporane contemporaneous writing. It doesn't matter if there's any monies paid back. It doesn't, you know, the trust just says that's what has to happen and that's what has to happen. So right. it's the cleanest way to do it, uh, but it rarely happens in my experience. Well, it's also hard to because you're, you're looking at one moment in time when you're doing that amendment or you're doing the trust. Right. And 10 years from now, the child may have paid everything back. And if that term's still in there, well, what, what do you do now? And so now you have a child trying to prove that they paid. I mean, it, it can be problematic. And so sometimes if you uh, are a little bit more generalized in the language of the trust, such as the trustee has the ability to, in their, uh, the way they're looking at this, and uh, they have discretion as to accept uh, documents from any child who feels that they have paid back in advance on inheritance so that they go, can prove if it they can prove if they can yeah. prove it to the trustee right and uh, th but then again you get trustees that maybe want to favor one child over another so this is problematic but it's something that should be addressed in the trust terms and I agree with you that if you try to do it any other way like we've had uh, cases where people have said these are truly loans between the parent and this one child, but nothing's in writing, right? and there's nothing to trust, who's gonna win that case? Yeah, the, the child is not gonna have to pay back that loan because it's not documented. And a lot of times they were done, what, five, six, 10 years ago. Well, it's past the statute of limitations in any of that. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's a real problem. But I think if you sit down, you have this discussion with the estate planner and with the child who's taking the loan, I think that you have some chance of being able to figure something out. But it definitely has to be planned out. This can be a disaster. Right. All right, Kayla, what do we have next? 
Our next question is, is it a good idea to have step-siblings as co-trustees? And I had to laugh when I read this question because my mom actually made my brother and I, or my stepbrother and I, co-trustees. And I mentioned that to Keith and he said, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> so why is that, Keith? That really sums it up, doesn't it? I mean, I know the thought process is I'll make one of my children trustee and one of my wife's children trustee, and that way both sides are represented, and they'll both come together and do the right thing, which probably happens sometimes. I don't know. I've never seen it work, but then we always see the worst of the worst. Well, but. you don't see the ones that don't work. But right. I mean, assuming right. Kayla. Kayla's super nice, and I don't know anything about her stepbrother, but hopefully he's nice, and hopefully they'll be able to work it out. But no, it's a disaster. It's a disaster to even put two people of any relations in as co-trustees, in my opinion. Even if they're kids from the same parents. Or, or just two, you got two neighbors you like, or two <laughs> anybody, because the minute you put two people in, they're going to have a divergent view about how the trust is to be administrated, and then you're gonna, they're going to have some conflicts. Right. And that makes it hard to have a seamless administration. And so many people think they just need to name a kid, or in this case, they're naming one kid or both sides so that everybody has a voice. Maybe in that case, you should look outside the family. Maybe even a private fiduciary. Yes, they're more expensive, but you get a bank or you get somebody that actually is an expertise and a private trustee, uh, especially if you have a large enough estate. But putting two people in that uh, are going to be opposed to each other almost from the get-go is not a good idea. People are really opposed to having um, uh, professional trustees, whether it's corporate trustee or even a professional trustee. Well. I don't know that that many people know about professional trustees. I think most people are thinking, I don't want a corporate trustee, a trust company. And a lot of corporate trustees won't take these administrations unless the trust is over. Some, five million, yeah. yeah some, they have to be pretty big. Even five million, sometimes they won't take it. Yeah, it's crazy. But there is a, a class of professional, a professional trustee. They're not trust companies, but they're not your neighbor. They're actually professionals. And there are some good ones out there. There's a few bad ones, but most of them are, are pretty good at what they do. Why not just name a professional trustee as opposed to two children? Right. And people are just so opposed to it. And I think, number one, it's the cost. And number two, I think that there's this sense that, well, I just want my kids to handle it. You know, I want them, and, and they'll, they'll figure it out, I'm sure. Right. And, and yet, a lot of times they don't. Right. So you should really think about having a professional trustee named in your trust. And I used to, when I did planning, I used to always tell people about it. 95% of the time they would say, no, I want my kids, okay. But at least I, I had that discussion. Right, So, right. Kayla, was this your mom that did this plan? My mom and my stepdad. Okay. And, and actually my stepbrother and I get along really well. Okay, well, but, but the thing I think you should do is I think you should unduly influence them to getting him out and then you take <laughs> over and then make sure they give you everything at the end. I think that's the way you should set this up. That's what we see <laughs> happening. I'm not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> Suit yourself. So the next question is, how can parents plan for a situation in which one child is living in the home? Well, and, and we do see this a lot, Keith, and, and I'll give you an example. There's three kids of the family, and two of them have gone on to be very successful in their own right, whether they're doctors, lawyers, engineers, architects, whatever. These kids have moved away from the home, uh, usually early on, finish their education, finish their master's degree. They, they are in a very busy profession, so they don't have a lot of time to come back and spend with mom and dad. They still love mom and dad. They still come for the holidays and those kind of things, but they're busy people. And then there's one kid that's from the same stock, but for some reason doesn't want to go to school, 
um, falls on hard times continually and ends up moving in with mom and dad. Yeah, or I was going to say, or they had a career and then they fell on hard times and that's where they're at now. Yeah, That's true. That can happen as well. And so then this person's in the, uh, in the home and there's a trust and mom and dad die and maybe they made this person the trustee. I mean, what are some of the things that we're seeing is a problem in dealing with the trustee who lives at home when the parents pass? Well, they don't want to move out and they don't want to pay rent. And really what they want is for everything to continue the way they always have. And so that way, you know, if, if you're living in the parent's home and you don't have any income for whatever reason, either because you never had a job or because you fell on hard times and lost a career through no fault of your own, you don't really want life to change just because the parents died. And so they want it to remain the same. And sometimes people are, uh, you know, more sympathetic, like they're trying to work with their siblings and they can't quite come to an agreement. And sometimes they're just militant about it. It's just, mm-hmm. I'm living here and I'm not selling the place and that's just the way it is. Right. And uh, of course you can't do that. If the trust says an outright distribution to two kids and one of them's living there, you either gotta buy the other one out or you gotta sell. Those are your two options. Right. So it can become a real problem. And I know we talked in the past about well, when do you start charging rent, and can somebody live there for a you know short amount of time before the rent kicks in, which might or might not be okay depending on what, how the court sees it. But the bottom line is is that the person uh, one beneficiary is not allowed to occupy a trust property all by themselves. Right, right. So well, what's the best way to plan this then? Well, there's a a couple of ways. So one is is it possible to give that child the home and give the other children other assets of equal value? specific gift that'd be one way so you say you can't do that the only real asset in the trust is the home then the other thing I would say is do you want to give that child a life estate a right to live there for the rest of their lives and then everybody else doesn't get a a dime from that house until that child dies now that's really onerous to the other children because it keeps money out of their hands which isn't entirely fair and they're not going to view that as being fair it's very upsetting yes so then the other option is, well, what if you allowed the child who's living in the home a certain amount of time, a deadline? So you can live there for one year rent-free because that takes the rent issue off the table. Right. It also gives them some time to live there and, and not get kicked out like the next day. But after that year, then they have to get out. And I like that option. It's also short enough time that while the other siblings aren't going to be happy about that one year, it's a definite one year it's in the terms of the trust. Make it six months, make it nine months, whatever. But it's a it's something where there's light at the end of the tunnel for the kids that have gone on with life, and they're usually willing to accept that. Right. Because um, as a parent, you don't want to throw the kid out on their ear that's living at home. Right. But on the other hand, you don't want the other kids to feel that you didn't care about them as well. Yeah. So you have to come up with some compromise. There. That's right. Yeah. All right, Kayla. The next question is from Facebook. Does a stepson have a right to see the trust just like a blood heir? Ooh, that's a good question. Does a stepson have a right to see the trust? Well, uh, in most cases, the answer is going to be yes. And the reason, I would say, and the reason for that is if the trust was created by your parent and the step parent, then once your parent dies, you have a right as an heir of your parent to see that trust, whether you're a beneficiary or not. What do you think? So let's go back to the statute. The statute says that once one of the parents die, let's assume it's your dad that dies, Yeah. the rule is you get a right to see your father's trust, no matter who he's made it with, Yeah. if you are an heir of your father. So if you're a blood relative, 
or if you're uh, were a named beneficiary of the trust. Okay. And so we're going to look at those two criteria as we analyze this. So I could see we need a little bit more facts in this case, but I think what we're hearing is I have a stepson, let's say, that wants to get and see a copy of my trust. Yes, they're going to be able to see that if their father was your spouse or their mother was your spouse and it was part of their trust because that is an heir of the son. The, heir, the son is an heir of the mother. You're talking about like a joint trust that, that mom and dad or uh, that dad and, and spouse did together. That's right. But then let's be careful here. There's some times where we have a bypass trust and a survivor's trust. Right. And here, if the survivor's trust is the step parent, the good news for the survivor for the step parent is you do not have to disclose anything about your survivor's trust to the step's child. Especially and if it's still revocable, it's, right? Which most of them are. And most of them are. And so uh, you're gonna have it's a little bit of a you know, it's a little bit of a compromise. You're gonna have to show what the decedent's assets were, because that's an heir. And then also think about this. If you've named anybody in your trust that's not an heir, let's say that they named their next door neighbor. And right. the next door neighbor wants to see a copy of the trust. If they were named as a beneficiary, they're entitled to the irrevocable portions of that trust, which right. is the probably the bypass trust for, uh, portion. Right. But we don't have enough facts here to, to say, but it sounds like uh, the answer is more than likely going to be yes, at least to one half the trust. For all the every part of the trust that represents dad's portion of the estate, you'll be able to. You should be able to see that. And, in the, and if this step-parent wants the best news possible, that trust would essentially say that dad gives everything to the surviving step-parent, to his surviving spouse, right? And if he gives everything to the surviving spouse, then yes, the kid's going to be able to see that. The stepchild's going to be able to see that trust, but then they're not going to be able to ask for an accounting or any of those other things. Although in that case, you're more than likely going to see a trust contest flow out of that. But the, the point right. being, uh, you wouldn't have to disclose anything about the assets at that point in time. Yeah, so it depends on how the trust is structured, if there's a bypass and survivor's trust, or if it's just all survivor's trust. It can get a little complicated in terms of the answer, but but yeah, I agree. So in general to that answer, very likely you're gonna have to share a copy of the trust. Right. The next question is, are there any other ways to protect my trust from co-trustees who do not get along? So we do see this a lot where there's two trustees that don't get along and there's a, a, a specific probate code section on this. And so what do we do when we have two trustees that don't get along and we need the trust administration to move forward? Well, so if you're in that situation already, then I, you're going to have to probably go for removal. One of the trustees wants to remove the other one. Or the easier approach is, let's say you and I are co-trustees, we don't get along, I would ask the court to remove you, and I would say I'm also willing to step down if we can get a neutral professional trustee to step in. And the reason you make that argument is because courts are very receptive to having a neutral professional step in, because then they feel like, oh good, somebody will be there who, uh, who could take care of things. Is right. that what you were thinking? Yeah, and, and that's really what it comes down to is there's a probate, probate code provision that says that if you have a deadlock between the trustees, uh, that's one reason you can remove somebody. And I think you're exactly right on this. Most courts, whether both trustees agree or not, uh, if they see two feuding trustees, they're going to say, we're going to put a neutral in and we'll let the neutral take care of it. So let's talk about it from the planning side. So let's say you, you know, like if we're advising uh, Kayla's mom that her and her stepbrother are going to be co-trustees, but we want a safety valve. And that's where you get into this idea of like trust protectors. 
So trust protectors are something that you don't see very often, at least we don't, in our trust that we review. We review, what, a couple thousand trusts a year, maybe more. And uh, very rarely do you see any trust protectors or any, anything like that. But what do you think of that concept? I mean, it's a nice first step, I think. I, I can tell you that if we have a trust like that and we don't like the trust protector, we're still going to file a petition for instructions with the probate court and say, Judge, we need you to step in here because this trust protector has no idea what they're doing. So you can draft that in. Um, it might work. I don't know. Would you be receptive? Let's say that you and I are feuding trustees and Kayla is a trust protector. She's a non-lawyer. She's just a, a very nice person. She's reasonably smart. She's college educated, all those things. And she comes and says, okay, well, I'm going to remove Keith and I'm going to leave Stuart in. What's your response to the trust protector? <laughs> yeah, that she's been uh, somehow tainted or unduly influenced or she doesn't know what she's talking about. Right. Yeah. She's making a bad decision. So, Judge, yeah. I need you still to bring in a right. neutral here. So. Right. But if she decided to remove you, then I think I would be <laughs> complete. But, yeah, I mean, and, and just for people who don't know, a trust protector, that concept, there's also a concept of a special trustee. Uh, they work a little differently, although they're similar. A trust protector is somebody that you would name who has very specific powers, such as removing a trustee or appointing a new trustee or something like that. So they have these kind of extraordinary powers where they can hopefully step in and, and, and um, help fix things before they go to court. But you're right. I mean, the problem with the trust protector is the person who's embattled and being removed is going to fight against them just as much as they fight against the other co-trustee. The special trustee is slightly different in the sense that a special trustee actually can be given powers like a trustee and they usually kick in, for example, if you want to do distributions to family members, sometimes they'll have a special trustee who has to weigh in and decide whether a distribution to a family member is going to take place or not. That'd be like a special trustee. You don't usually see removal powers with a special trustee that usually see the the power to make investment decisions or distribution provisions or to break a tie. So let's say you and I generally get along but we can't agree on one particular aspect of, of the administration and we're deadlocked, a special trustee could come in and break the tie right. between the two. I, I know how to solve all of this really and if you think about <laughs> it, I mean this would be the best planning tool you could ever do. Oh, yeah. Let's say you have three kids you make them all three trustees, co-trustees. Okay. okay. They all have equal We're not power. off to a good start. We, okay. we make them all equal co-trustees. All have yeah. equal power, equal okay. say. If the trust administration is not completed 12 months from the decedent's date of death, they're all disinherited. <laughs> okay? So it's an equal distribution. The judge is going to like that. There's not going to be likely undue influence there. And if you can't figure it out between the three and 12 months, right. you're, I'll bet you that'll force people to work together. Yeah, so. all of a sudden, everybody sees eye to eye real quick. <laughs> Especially when you get to nine months. Right. We got three months left, yeah. folks. What are we doing here? Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of like in our litigations. Once you set a trial date, what happens? Good things happen. Yeah, all of a sudden, everybody wants to go to mediation and settle because they don't actually want to face the music. Oh, no, so. we, we went against an attorney down in San Diego that he said in court, open court to the judge, he would never mediate <laughs> under any circumstances. <laughs> And uh, so there we were in mediation a yeah, couple of weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah successful yeah. outcome. So, that's, yeah. that's always an intimidating statement. Yeah. But um, it, it would be interesting, though, if you could do something like that. I'm not sure that – I've never seen that, number one. I'm not, I don't know if it would even be legally enforceable because of the way our no contest clause uh, law works. But that would be a huge incentive. I love it. Well, I mean, you think about it. If you did it equal distributions between everybody, I mean – the chance of undue influence being there, mostly with undue influence, we're seeing one person favor themselves over over other individuals, right? right. Beneficiaries. Right. But here it's an even cut. 
And if you guys can't get this done in a certain amount of time, then you're the out. The thing that I don't understand is that if you see kids who don't generally get along during while you're alive, why do you think they're going to get along once you're gone? <laughs> yeah. And that's what you always see these parents like they'll name three people as co-trustee, three co-trustees, three siblings who right. never got along during life. Right. Are suddenly going to get along. They're all going to come together after the parent passes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's not my experience, but okay. <laughs> I guess hope springs eternal. It does. Okay. And, and the other thing, too, it would just be kind of fun. Like if, I don't know about what your thoughts on the afterlife, but if you're there, you could watch your three kids fight it out for, you know, Well, if that's, what, if that's the situation you're trying to set up, then people are doing a great job of that. You yes. know, we've come across, that raises a, an interesting concept in my mind. We've come across some pretty screwy trusts in our career. And it seems like sometimes these are drafted in a way that they want litigation to come out of it. You right. Because so, it's so ambiguous as to what was supposed to happen here. Right. It could be read three different ways. Right. Well, and, and all three different ways give a different result to the beneficiaries. Oh, I know. And, and, you know, it's funny because even attorney drafted trust can be read different ways. And uh, I have had two cases now. One where an attorney drafted trust uh, really didn't make any sense. And unfortunately, that attorney had... Uh, died before we got the case, so we could never ask him. Like, what is this language supposed to mean? And then uh, recently, we had another case where the drafting attorney said that the language, well, this language isn't clear, so I can't really administer it. And they're the ones who drafted it. Right. It's like, well, if you're the one drafting it and right. you don't think it's clear, how's anybody else going to survive in this in this uh, business? So it's, it can be tough getting the language right so that it can be actually properly administered. It's not easy. I've left everything in my estate to my friends. Okay, good. So I don't I'm, know. I'm suddenly your friend. I don't know how, how you're going to I wasn't your friend na- I mean, before that, but now I I have, have a lot of friends on Facebook, so <laughs> I, I guess everybody gets a piece, who's, right? who's really the friend? You know what? I'll judge that. <laughs> I'm the one true who, friend. Who cries hard enough at my funeral? I'm your, what is it? Who's your best friend? Who's your best friend? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah we've had that discussion. Yes. Right. All right, Kayla, save us from ourselves over here. <laughs> Please. Well, I hope I'm a friend. <laughs> <laughs> How can a bypass trust be structured to protect both the surviving spouse and the siblings? Yeah, this is a tough one because um, that's where somebody, you know, uh, let's say your dad dies and his share of the estate goes into an irrevocable bypass trust, so it can't be changed. and. He wants to benefit his spouse while the spouse is living, and then the assets are going to go down to the kids. Sounds simple enough. So It never works that way, unfortunately, <laughs> and I think it's just human nature. There's, I don't judge people anymore. I used to think there was good and bad in trust administration and trust litigation. I think people are hurting. I think families are dysfunctional. I think that people uh, feel there's inequities, unfairness going on. And when you feel that emotional response to something, it doesn't matter how much logic you bring to the table, you're having an emotional response to it and you're gonna, you're gonna cling to that. Um, here, let's use me as an example, I have a son and so I love my son and I care about him, but then I get married to somebody, well that person, I want them to be taken care of until they die, right? That's mm-hmm. natural. Right. And so when I die, you're the lawyer explaining to my wife that, oh yeah, 50% of what you and your husband, husband had, we're gonna transfer that half of it over here and put it in this locked box that you really can't access. Oh, you get the interest from it. They never right. hear that, but you get the interest from it a couple times a year, but right. we're gonna lock that up and it's a very uncomfortable conversation. And so the majority of these bypass trusts go unfunded, right? They don't even yeah, get Yeah, they're funded. not even created. Yeah. And so, and when the second spouse dies, that's when people like you and I come into it saying, time out folks, 
10 years ago, you were supposed to fund this bypass trust, and it's difficult to figure out how much should have gone into the bypass trust. Right. But it still could be recreated. It so can. now you're trying to go back and recreate this thing that should have happened 10 years ago. Right. And then if you did have those assets in the bypass trust 10 years ago, what should they be worth today? Right. But it is a tough conversation. I, and I can imagine just, you know, if something happened to my spouse saying, okay, half your assets have to go over here, including half your house. Right. We really, we literally have to slice off half of the home you live in. Right. And and lock it away. Well, in fact, we're probably going to take the home and put it in the bypass trust, which right. you have a life estate, you're going to live there, and then you're going to get all the cash assets in your survivor's trust. Right. And again, that's a, the, the spouse, the surviving spouse does not enjoy this conversation <laughs> no. and ask you why was this lousy plan ever drafted up? For taxes, of course, which yeah. most people don't bear estate tax anymore because it's the, the state tax limit is so high. It's but, over 11, 11 but, million. But now what we're trying to do is keep the money so that we go we have it go down to the deceased spouse's children, right? Ultimately, one day into the future. Well, because that's what happens is if the bypass trust isn't funded, then the surviving spouse essentially keeps everything, which you know is not supposed to happen. And then they do some amendment to the trust that leaves everything to their kids and excludes right. the other kids. Correct. And now we, we have a, that's a good case. We can go back, we can claw back half of the assets and give it to the kids who were left out. That's right. That's a perfectly good legal case, but it also means that that group of people have a lawsuit in their future but because Keith, it wasn't planned well. If I'm one of those beneficiaries, why do I have to hire a lawyer? <laughs> I mean, the trust says what it says. How come the bypass trust wasn't created? Well, do you have money in your hands? Because if you don't, you're gonna have to <laughs> hire a lawyer. Yeah, people don't give up money easily, you know? <laughs> Myself included. So yeah, it's, it's to go back and recreate one of these things. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes the help of the court, it takes a lawsuit because it's the only way that you're actually gonna convince people to do the right thing, I think. But um, so you have this bypass trust and it's set up and normally the surviving spouse, so let's say somebody does fund the bypass trust, they put assets in there and the surviving spouse is usually the trustee of that trust, they're managing it. So now you've got this situation where the person who gets the assets during his or her life is also the person managing it. How does that make the stepkids feel in that situation? Very vulnerable because are, is the trustee using the bypass trust assets that are meant for those kids for themselves during lifetime when maybe they should be using the survivor's trust assets and exhausting those prior to invading the bypass trust. And, and some trusts will have terms that'll tell you that's what's supposed to happen. Uh, obviously, uh, interest is going to come off of the bypass trust, and that goes to the surviving spouse. But if they're coming in after the principal, the, uh, the, the selling the house and taking money out of principal, that's a problem. They can't do that, and that hurts the kids of the deceased spouse. And it pits the kids against each other too, right? Because now you've got the kids from either spouse not really liking each other because they're thinking, well, you know, this person's taking my money and right. instead of using the money that would go to you. And right. It just breeds all sorts of problems back and forth. Right. So what would be a better way to handle that then? If you have a bypass trust, you you want to you want to benefit your spouse during the lifetime, but you also want to make sure that the terms are being followed properly. Well, you put an independent trustee in place of yeah. the bypass trust. So now we're back to professional trustee. Right. So right. if you have a professional trustee who knows what they're doing and does yeah. the right things, then the bypass trust can be funded. The assets that go to the spouse will go out, and whatever's not supposed to go out to the spouse will be protected to go to the kids. And, and I can tell you, I, the kids the, of the, the of the deceased spouse who are, are the beneficiaries of the bypass trust, the last thing they want to do is force the mom to account. 
Right. But they feel like they have to sometimes because they're not sure what's happening with those assets. Right. Therefore. And of course, then that makes mom upset. And now mom's going to do anything and everything she can to take assets from the bypass trust if she's entitled to do that. So it's one of those things that it's almost better to let sleeping dogs lie if possible. Uh, but if you have to, sometimes you have to come forward and get an accounting. Well, imagine you said that the spouse doesn't like having to divide up all the assets and put half in the bypass trust. And then on top of that, the kids come to her, her stepkids come to her and say, we want you to do an accounting. Right. I mean, that's rubbing salt in the wounds, isn't right. it? Right. She's seen these as her assets. And yeah. You don't get those until it's time. You're almost saying, in her mind, die so yeah. I can have my assets. Right. Yeah, I think so. So. I think professional trustees make a, a, a huge difference in these scenarios. All right, Kayla. One last question from Facebook. How do I find out if a family member created a trust? Ooh, that's a good question. So you have a trust that may be floating around out there after somebody <laughs> dies. It may, may have made its way to the shredder. Right. Uh, maybe somebody's hanging on to it and not producing it. What do we do, Keith? It's not so easy because trusts are not recorded documents. So you're not going to find them at the county recorder's office. You're not going to find them at the courthouse. You're not going to find them at any government agency. They're private documents. What could you find at the recorder's office, perhaps, that would lead you down the trail that there may be a trust? Indeed. And so it's fairly often that you'll have a house that is titled in the name of a trust. That's your first clue that there must be a trust somewhere, or at least there was at one time. And so the first thing you want to do is look at any real property that the decedent owns and pull a copy of the deed and see what the deed title is. And if it's on trust, now you at least have some idea that there must be a trust out there. But give, that doesn't mean that you'll see the trust. Give us an example of, of what that title would. So I own my house as, a, as an unmarried man. It says Stuart Albertson, comma, an unmarried man. How would it look if I, my house was in my trust? So then it'd say Stuart Albertson, comma, trustee of... The Stuart Albertson revocable trust dated whatever date. So, and there's no magic words there. It's just a tr you'll see trustee of a trust on the title. Yeah, something along those lines. Okay. And right. so then you have a hint that there must be a trust. Now, then the question becomes, okay, there's a trust. Where's the trust document? Because that's not necessarily recorded with oh. the county recorder. And when we used to do our trusts, uh, we ended up recording many times the deed for our client. And where would we have the deed sent back to? To us. To us, our office, and we're lawyers, and so perhaps maybe you'll strike lucky and you'll see that there's a lawyer's address on the deed, and if there is, then that would be my next phone call. Yeah, so call the lawyer's office. Now, I've, I've had people before where they're like, I called the lawyer, they're either deceased or they're no longer in practice, and their files got transferred to some other law firm, but they don't have it either. So that's not necessarily guaranteed, but it's, uh, and, you know, in a lot of cases, you'll be able to find it by tracking down the lawyer who drafted it. Funny enough, we had a case just recently that we worked on where the, that's exactly what happened. The lawyer had died and been gone for 10 years or so. And our client, before he was our client, ended up calling the wife of the lawyer. <laughs> right. And she's like, oh yeah, come on over. And I got he, it all right here. He, he had banker's boxes and he went and got the trust. And, and then when we got hired in the case, we, we were not privy to that fact. Yeah. And we ended up being at a round table with a bunch of lawyers, yeah. and we all discovered that he's got a copy of the trust. Yeah. Well, the other lawyers freaked out. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, the originals and everything. Like, you do? I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, it's odd. But it is, hopefully the drafting attorney has a copy. If not, then you're looking through all of mom and dad's papers. And the worst place to put a trust or will, by the way, is in a safe deposit box. Don't ever put it in a safe deposit box because trying to get into those things is a nightmare. Well, I mean, at some point you might have to go and open a petition for probate. Yeah. 
and you have to get a court to sign off on that. That's time consuming, it's expensive, and just to open up a box that may be empty or right. not. So generally what you should do with your trust, well, let's talk about that. If you have a trust and you're gonna make three or four copies of it, who do you want to safeguard that trust? Well, I would give it to the whoever's the successor trustee, whoever I named a successor trustee so that they have a copy so they would know. I personally would give it to my children, but you know, my trust that gives it to the kids equally. My, my only one of my sons is an adult. So I wouldn't give it to a minor child, but um, I've, you know, I have it. Um, I also uh, am part of this estate plan, uh, financial planner who has a program. And part of that program is you upload all of your important documents such as your trust. And so now it's there and that will always be there. So there's, there's um, it's called the living balance sheet. And so um, there's products like that that you can use. but. A lot of estate planners will tell people, don't give this to your children, don't give it to the successor trustee, because if you make any changes, then you know, you'll have to tell them and give them another copy and that could be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm now, after doing so much litigation, I'm a big proponent of just give it to the people who need it and just deal with it because it's more important that people have it than they don't have it. So again, I have the ultimate solution to this okay, and it'll great. work beautifully. I, I know you're gonna love it. Oh, I can't this. wait. I know. It's gonna be good. So, Facebook, Hopefully everybody's writing this down. You know, Facebook has the like option and they have the smiley face option. They've got all kinds of options. You can post messages, pictures. They should allow you to upload your estate plan and it's in a locked vault. And then when you die, it can be opened up by court order. <laughs> and there's your estate plan. There yeah. it is. There should be more of a way to keep track of these things. Because what the other thing that happens, you know, Stuart, is, and we've had these cases too, where you'll pull a deed, it's in the name of a trust. You can't find the trust document anywhere and you've looked and the people look at the home and they look in the bank deposit vault and they call the drafting attorney, nowhere to be found. And so then the asset has to go through probate. Right. Because if you can't find the trust document, then you don't know what the trust terms are. You can't administer a trust. It, right. just, it just doesn't exist. Right. So imagine you went to all the trouble and time and expense of creating a trust and you still have to go through probate because you didn't give it to anybody. Right. That's so frustrating. It is. It is. And, and, and while that's rare and it does happen, uh, the way to keep that from happening is to leave copies with trusted individuals, uh, publish it on Facebook immediately, whatever you need to do to get the idea out there that you do have a trust. I was joking about publishing on Facebook. Please don't do that. <laughs> um, but uh, make sure that... Uh, Facebook probably already has it. You know, all their privacy problems. Yeah, well, that's like true. That, you know? That's true. But anyway, <laughs> I, I think that ultimately you need to have people that you trust with it. Maybe not even the trustee. Sometimes you don't want your kids to know what you're doing. And uh, so you just want to give it some trust. For example, a little personal disclosure. You know, Keith, you have a copy of my trust. Right. And so if anything ever happens to me, I want everyone to know Keith has it. And if he yep. says it doesn't have it, that means he shredded it and go after him, Christopher. It's go a, after it's, him. It's under my pillow. I sleep <laughs> on it every night. You can also give it to your accountant. Like if you have a long-standing relationship with your accountant. I mean, there's ways to make it happen. Right. But, you know, think about it. Don't just stick it in a drawer and, and don't tell anybody. That's right. a problem. Do you have any other questions, Kayla? We don't have any other questions for today. Okay, why don't we go on to our final segment on our opinion. And uh, we're always uh, happy to give our opinion, so it seems, and it's worth the money you paid for it. <laughs> the, uh, the one thing I wanted to end on, so we get a lot of problems where stepkids are um, fighting amongst each other. And a lot of it comes from, par- oh, well, a lot of it comes from bad planning, as we've talked about uh, during this segment. 
But what are some of the creative ways that you can help stepkids um, in part of the plan? And one of the things that I thought about was if, let's say your father passes away and, you know, he's married to his wife, not your mother, and every, he wants to support her, but he also gives each you and your two siblings a, a gift now so that you feel like you're getting at least part of your inheritance now. So what if each of you got $100,000, for example, and then the house went into a trust for stepmom, and then upon her death, it goes, you know, according to the trust terms, so probably equally to the kids. Do you think that would help anything in terms of these stepkids trying to get along with each other? I think part of the problem, the reason I'm raising this, is I think part of the problem is, is if your parent dies and you just get nothing, and you're told, oh yeah, everything's being held for the benefit of your stepmother, and once she dies, whenever that is, then you'll get something. I think that's when the problems really crop up. I mean, it, it's, it's so difficult, and I, I'm just listening to what you're saying, and I think I, I'd like to agree with it, but then I start thinking about the conversation that the husband, while he's still living, is having with his estate planning attorney with his wife present, and generally, wives understand that they're, they're going to be the surviving spouse. It's not always the case, but in, in more cases than not, it is. And trying to explain that to somebody, I think, is, is going to be problematic because, again, she's going to see that as her assets after the death. It's also a traumatic time for her. She just lost her spouse. And so she's going to have a hard time giving that gift up. I think to run towards your argument, though, if you're the estate planner, you can tell the wife, but we don't know if you are going to be the surviving spouse. So it works both ways. So we're going to be fair to your kids and fair to your spouse's kids. And so that may be the thing that gets it over the, the hurdle. Right. What do you think about having like a meeting with all the kids while they're still alive on this est on these estate planning issues? You know, that goes a long way. I think even if the kids aren't getting along, I think that would go a long way. And you can say, look, y'all don't even have to say anything. I'm just going to sit you down. My lawyer's going to be here, and I'm just going to explain what's going on. Uh, again, the problem with that is what happens with subsequent changes in the future. Uh, you got to make sure you're informing everybody going forward. Um, I, I've read about the idea of a living trust contest. I, I, I haven't looked into it too much. I think yes. Nevada, perhaps, is a state. I'm just, yeah, I'm, there's a few states that are experimenting with that. Right, now. and so you could do it that way. But um, ultimately, really what this comes down to, Keith, and I've said this a lot, is that Probably it's a high percentage. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's ninety percent of us, but it's a high percentage. Let's call it eighty percent of the population is not going to get much from their parents. Right. And so there's this cream of the crop, we'll call it, that actually end up getting assets. Just be happy you're getting assets. If you don't get everything that's coming to you, you know, you, there's a lot of people that aren't getting anything. And so if you can put your mind frame around that, it can be helpful. Uh, if you're survive, me personally, if my dad did marry somebody and I liked them. I would want them to use the assets for, mm -hmm. I mean, he, that my dad chose them. And so use the assets for your well-being. If there's anything left over in the end and you want to be fair, that's great. If not, well, it's not, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to try not to get caught up in that because it's very painful. I mean, how many people come to us, hire us, and even in the most successful cases we have say, man, I'm really glad we litigated that. Yeah, we had a blast. Boy, yeah. that was fun. No, very few. But I, And I think most people are willing to accept that I may not get everything. I think that the problem arises when, when you face that, I'm not going to get anything. Right. And that's not just a lack of money, but it's a lack of love and respect. It's the legacy. Legacy, yeah, right. from the parents. So 
I really like the idea of having a family meeting. I know it's kind of awkward probably to do that and uncomfortable, but at least it allows the children to hear from the parents directly, this is what we're going to do and this is how we have it set up so that everybody can hear it, that this is how we're doing it. But it, it does raise problems. I mean, if somebody, uh, you know, a lot of people aren't willing to do that because it is uncomfortable, or, you know, maybe they have a difficult situation where they are going to disinherit a child, you don't, you don't feel like you really want to talk about it. Right. Uh, one, one last comment I'll make is that, uh, you know, this idea in California that when a, a man and a woman or, or two domestic partners get married, everything that they gain from that point forward is, is equally theirs, no matter who is the breadwinner. Mm -hmm. So if we have a very successful female lawyer making three or $400,000 a year, and her husband stays home and takes care of all of their kids, which are a blended family now, and there's a 10-year marriage there, everything they have earned, the law says, that's gonna be presumed to be a 50-50 split. Yeah. And so let's say that you're in a situation where you have three kids and your wife uh, has two kids. I think personally, I know it's hard to swallow sometimes, is just do an even split. Just do an amongst even all five. amongst all five. Yeah. You're going to split it up 20% each, even though her kids are going to end up getting a little bit better deal in that. It, it just makes it so that it's an even split along along the way. And judges seem to like when a judge sees something that just seems fair on paper. Boy, it's going to be hard to dislodge that plan. Yeah, and I think a lot of people actually do that. They actually do share it among all the kids. A lot of people don't. And it depends on the circumstances too. So if you have a marriage later in life and the marriage only lasted a couple of years, it's one that, that's different from a marriage when the kids are all young and the marriage lasts 30 years. So right. it probably depends on the circumstances there too. But right. these are not easy issues to navigate, no matter who you are, no matter what your financial situation is. And it affects everybody across the board. So I mean, it doesn't matter rich, poor alike, everybody has to deal with these step uh, parent and stepchild issues and there's just no easy answer right but man you should spend some time thinking about it mm -hmm. because the more time you put into the planning the less chance you or your children are going to meet the likes of Albertson and Davidson <laughs> which is unfortunate from our perspective <laughs> that's but, true but good for them yes so great uh, do you have any other thoughts you want to share? No, I thought this was a, a good conversation. Well, I want to uh, thank everybody for joining us. Again, you can find our recorded broadcasts on Facebook and YouTube, and you can find a audio-only version on iTunes or at uh, Podbean for our podcast. I do want to remind you to keep an eye out for our on our YouTube page for our ad for the Hawaii Tax Institute if you're interested in that sort of thing, and you can get a link to get the discount and get $500 off and send yourself to Hawaii. Why not? Very good.